0: That is one of those companion verses, of Colossians that we'll be looking at a little bit later. Before we start to look at the book, let's talk to the author. Let's pray together. Father, we pray with the psalmist. We look to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. May he not allow your foot to slip. May your protector not sleep. Israel's protector does not sleep or slumber. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is the shade of your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect you. The Lord will protect you in all that you do now and forevermore. Father, we are so grateful for the protection and the promises of your scriptures, of your word. And Father, we ask that this morning, these themes that we sing about, um, the stories that we tell, the story that we tell just will become more vivid, and these themes that may of, of Lent and Easter and, and uh, what you have done for us, even though they may be uh, as, as old as time itself, Father, they, we ask that you make them new in our hearts, that uh, you teach us to live with uh, contentment, and you remove from us any kind of grumbling and, and whining and Father, we ask that you visit us with your Holy Spirit, that you renovate our imagination, that you uh, guide us in our decisions, that you be with us and we know your presence in, in, in silence and in speech and in solitude and in crowds and in rest and in activity. Father, we rejoice in your presence and we seek to know and to feel and to see you working around us. So Father, keep us awake. Uh, as your scriptures say. We awake to see what you're doing in our lives and in our world around us. And it's so easy to get pessimistic. It's so easy to get a um, uh, feeling of, of darkness. But Father, we know we live in hope. And we live in hope that, uh, that it will all be well. And all will be well in you. And with that trust, Father, we look into your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We are continuing our, our work on, uh, in uh, a study on Colossians, uh, rooted in the wisdom of Christ. And we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3 uh, this morning. Uh, when when uh, Katie, the Mexican schools, like English schools and British schools and other parts of the schools, they, they, they go to school with uniforms. The students wear uniforms. And uh, Katie, since she was in preschool, wore a uniform in her school. And now she teaches at a school that requires her students to wear uniforms. Um, When I grew up in my school, we did not have uniforms in junior high and high school, but we did have P.E. uniforms, and they were very important. Uh, We had to wear them every day. We bought them in the beginning. We we took them to school. We put them in the locker in September or August, and probably didn't take them out again until May, Uh, maybe Christmas. Maybe we took them home to get them washed at Christmas. I don't know, Uh, but they were very important, and every P.E. class, we all lined up, and the coach would walk across the line and make sure we were wearing our uniform. White shirts, Lake Highlands Junior High with a little white banner here that we were supposed to write our name with permanent marker in, red shorts, white socks, and tennis shoes. Uh, you could not get on the gym floor with the street shoes on. That was the big mantra of the, of the PE department. And so he'd walk along, and if you didn't wear it, didn't wear the, have the right uniform on, he would make you think about it. And I still remember one time, one time only, I could not find my socks, my white socks. I don't know what happened to them. I have no idea where they went, but I was not wearing white socks. And so Coach Wells walks by and says, Moo, where are your white socks? I don't know. Well, I think you need to think about that. <laughs> and when you had to think about it, that means you had to go to the side of the gym and uh, do a plank kind of with your toes on the, on the floor, And your elbows on the floor oops i gotta do this sorry about that your elbows on the floor and then you put your chin in the palm of your your hands and you had to be parallel to the floor and you had to think about it until he said you thought about it long enough so he says moon i think you need to get over there and think about it so i did that one time and never again to think about it that's how important uniforms are uh in in certain areas and Like I said, we didn't wear uniforms, but that one was important. And we don't wear uniforms in normal everyday life, sort of. Like I said, we didn't really have uniforms in school, but everybody dressed according to their group or their clique, uh, whatever they wanted to identify with. So we had, you know, the jocks and the cheerleaders who always dressed really nice. Uh, You had the nerds, you know, you could always hear them coming because they had their calculator on their belt and they walked down the hall and it it slapped their hip you know like that so you knew that was the the nerds uh you had uh the kickers or the goat ropers i don't know what y'all called them up here Uh, i won't tell you what they were kicking Uh, but um, they kicked manure but we didn't use manure Um, so they would always wear their their wrangler jeans big belt buckles and cowboy hats and stuff and then you had the long-haired hippie types who uh, we had actually had a smoking area in our high school. Can you believe that? We had an area where students could go and smoke. And they always hung out in the smoking area, you know, and so they kind of had their thing. And then a lot of you probably are too young to remember that we down in the South we had forced busing to desegregate the schools. So we had a bunch of black kids bust into our school from Hamilton Park, and they had their way of dressing, you know, the, in big heels and, and afros and that kind of thing. So, we always knew what their identity was. We, it just kind of spoke to that. And we all know still today that clothes uh, are not just for protection or warmth or modesty. Uh, they don't cover just things we don't want people to see, but they also reveal things that we do want people to see. And it kind of identifies us in a lot of ways. And that was true in the ancient world, too. Uh, you were identified by your status, by what clothes you wore, whether you're a public uh, official or whether you're a soldier or whatever it was, you had a certain clothes, and you were identified by those clothes. Uh, In the early church, there was even, you can find some of the instructions and the laws of the early church, and one of the rules in the early church was you were not to put on the purple robe. What was the purple robe? Well, that's what executioners wore, and they believed that it was wrong to take human life at all, always wrong to take human life, so you were not allowed to wear the purple robe. So it seems really natural that Paul would use clothing as a metaphor for what the Christian life was all about. And he told us a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at, at, at uh, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, of these, these clothes that Paul says you need to take off, these shabby clothes that you need to remove. You need to remove this when you're dominated by, by lust and desire so much that you use other people like toys or that you're so dominated by rage and anger that you get rid of people that, you, that get in your way. And he says, you're taking off this, and now we're going to look at the passage where Paul says he goes from negative to positive, and he's telling us what to put on. And he says, these are the things that we're going to identify you. And so clothes, we automatically know that they're not just for protection, they're not just for warmth, they're not just for modesty, but they speak. They reveal something about us. And he says, this is what... This is what we are supposed to put on. And so he goes into, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 in chapter 3. I'm just going to put the text on the screen here. 12 through 15, we'll look at those first. And basically what he's saying in this whole section is that he is telling you, he's telling us that we are a beloved chosen people of God. And then he says, therefore, dress appropriately, simply put. You are the beloved people of God. You are called to, be, to take on a task. Therefore, dress accordingly. And he's going to tell us how to dress. And he says, "A life well lived, well, that's what I'm titling this, this sermon is, of the life well lived, is one who knows who they are and should dress accordingly, should dress appropriately. So it says, uh, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against someone else, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you you also must forgive. And above all, clothe yourself with love, which is the perfect bond, and makes everything complete. And let the peace of Christ rule in your life, for which you were in fact called as one body to this peace, and be thankful. And so he starts off, with telling us who we are. He says we are a chosen race. That's what they called Israel. They were the chosen race. They were the chosen people to do a task and to represent Yahweh to the rest of the world. Well, now Paul is saying that everyone in the Messiah, in the Jewish Messiah, they are the chosen people. They are the chosen race. Holy means they were set apart to do something. And they are beloved, and therefore, they need to dress appropriately. They need to dress like the people that they are the one they're supposed to represent and he said and he gives this list right off the bat tenderhearted mercy kindness humility gentleness and patience now to me this is a surprising list if I didn't know anything about the Bible or don't know anything about Colossians and somebody asked me says well Tommy, what do you how do you identify a Christian I'm not sure I would come up with this list and even if I had come up with this list they would probably ask me, well, then how come you're not like that? <laughs> but he says this right off the bat, this is what you're supposed to look like. He has just told us what this fractured world looked like, dominated by, by, by lust and by, by, by personal gratification and rage and anger. That's the fractured world. But he says now we're moving toward the wholeness of the world, and this is what it looks like. He's not saying that, oh, by the way, let me give you a few instructions. He is saying, this is how you are to be identified. This is how you are supposed to to present yourself to the world. When people see you, this is what they're going to see. Tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, I don't know if I would have come up with that list right off the bat, that these are the most important things that people would see. This is a basic list of what they want to see. That, he, that we don't want to go too far down this, this role of, 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 uh, of fracturedness, but he says, this is what we want to see in you because this is what God is like. That's the whole gospel story. The kind of tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience of God. That's the whole gospel story. And therefore, we're to reflect that. Now, you might hear some preachers say, well, we don't want to go too far down that road because uh, we don't want to give the idea that God is just some grandfather sitting on the throne and everything's okay and he's just kind and, humili- and humble and gentle and patient. I'm going, why not? We, that's the way God is. That is the gospel message. Now, the, verse, the passage we looked at two weeks ago talked about God's wrath, and that's true. But that's how god reacts when god's love confronts injustice and we wouldn't want that any other way either when god's love confronts injustice of course he is going to react in a negative way because it is contrary to his his nature this is this is how what it's supposed to look like tender-hearted mercy and kindness what is this kindness I heard one theologian say, uh, "Kindness is learning how to be a dear." <laughs> In other words, and that's what we do. We, we talk about people. We especially, if I talk about some people that I deeply love and respect, I will say, "He was a dear man." When I talk about Malin Collins, who was one of our our supervisor missionary supervisors, I can honestly say Malin Collins was a dear man. I can say my grandfather, my my maternal grandfather, was a dear man. I have an aunt, a 93-year-old aunt, who is a dear woman. And these are people who just naturally bring a smile to your face. They don't paper over differences, but they just naturally, after you have contact with them, your day goes pretty well, or at least you feel like your day is better off. And I have an aunt who is like that. That when Sue or I call her on the phone, I'll call her on the phone, Aunt Millie, it's Tommy. Well, hi, baby. (laughs) She still calls me baby. And she is the sweetest person. She is a dear woman. And I'm certain she got that from my grandfather, who was humble. He was your typical, quiet, stereotypical farmer. And my mom said, I never saw my dad lose his patience. He said, we'd be making all kinds of racket. And he would just get a little closer to that radio so he could listen to it. And I never knew this story. My Aunt Millie told, told Sue this story. That one time they were in a car and they were seeing a black family walking along the road. And she made some kind of snide remark about them. And he pulled over and said, these are people we work with. You do not talk to them like that. You give them respect. And this is down in the south. This is a dear man and my Aunt Millie is a dear woman." This is kindness and humility and gentleness. And patience has to do with our reaction. Patience is the opposite of arrogance and rudeness. This is how we react to people, with patience. And it's interesting that when Paul is telling us how do we identify people who follow Christ, he comes up with these words. Not a single thing in there says doctrine. Or dogma. Now doctrine's important. But it's funny that Paul didn't mention those things. About how we identify Christ followers. Of kindness and mercy. And humility. And gentleness and patience. That we're not arrogant. We're not resentful. We're not anger. And he says the, proof, the fruit of all this. Is that we learn to put up with one another. We just learn to put up with one another bearing one another bearing with one another if anyone has a complaint, someone else then we forgive and that is one of the characteristics of the body of christ that we forgive and we forgive each other and that says easy does hard and sometimes forgiving is really really difficult and sometimes we just have to pray and wait till we can forgive and then we have to pray and wait some more because sometimes it just doesn't come naturally but I think what Paul's got in mind here is that parable that Jesus told about the man who was uh, the servant who was forgiven this great debt by, by his master but then held the other guy with a, with a much smaller debt to the held his feet to the fire and Jesus went on to say, hey, if you, don't deli- if you don't forgive this person, then God's not going to forgive you. In other words, this, this door of forgiveness swings both ways. That if you, if you close the door to forgiving someone else, you're closing the door to give off God's forgiveness as well. That God's forgiveness is, is something that flows through that door to forgive other people. And that is, that is hard to do. It says easy, but it's really hard to do. But it's the most basic element of the Christian life. Is we learn to put up with one another and we learn to forgive one another. And then he goes on to say, but above all, clothe yourself in love. Put that on top. Literally, it says, love is the perfect bond that makes us complete. We put that on top. If you want to read A Theologian of Love, read John Wesley. John Wesley said that, that love is the reigning attribute of God. In other words, every other attribute of God is, comes under the umbrella of love. It's always having to deal with that. He says uh, the whole life, the whole thing about being love, is that is from God. And he even goes on to say that all love is sacred because the ultimate source is God himself. That's how big he is on love. And basically that means just wanting the well-being of someone else. It's not sentimentalism. It's not just turning your back on things and ignoring stuff. It's wanting the best for someone. And, and, and sometimes, you know, you do have to take somebody by the lapels and say, get your act together. But it's wanting the well-being of that person. And he says, because of that, we will have unity in the body. And that's Paul's point. He is really, I think, his, his, if you want to define Paul, it's all about unity within the body. And he calls it the body of Christ. He doesn't call it the, the estate of Christ. He doesn't call it the plantation of Christ because all those things have fences and barriers and, and boundaries. But he calls it the body because it's all connected with muscles and tendons and ligaments and skeletons. And that's what he is talking about. That the full effect. Begin is peace within the body of Christ. That's what Paul is all about. That's what his main point is. If we were to ask Paul to come in and you be one of those church consultants and say, "Hey, Paul, why don't you come in and, and we need a church consultant here? Can can you tell us what to do about this? Um, you know, can you can you help our church grow? Can you help us be a better church?" I, he's not going to. He's. Not, I can guarantee you, he's not going to lecture us about speaking in tongues or spiritual gifts or anything like that. He's not going to lecture us about, about women in leadership and ministry. He's not going to lecture us about building a bigger parking lot or, or maybe building our own building or something like that. He's not going to lecture about that. I, vit- I see Paul coming in and saying, okay, take Colossians uh, 3, 12 to 15, and work on that for five years, and then I'll be back, and then we can maybe talk about some other things. I think this is what we need to be talking about. If he was a church consultant he would come and say meditate on colossians 3 12 and 15 and then i'll come back and maybe we will talk about some other things so basically he's saying that you are a called apart people you are called for a task you are holy you're loved therefore dress like it dress appropriately for your job but he also recognizes that this well-lived life is a non-never-ending collective effort He goes on to say that we need to uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God with grateful hearts. And whatever you do in word or action, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What he's saying here is that this is a long time process. Don't think it's just going to fall on your head and you're just gonna, it's just going to happen. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Now, there's a lot of debate about what Paul is saying here. What does he mean by the word of Christ? Is he talking about the gospel message? Is he talking about the Bible? Is he talking about Christ's teaching? And I would say, yes, all the above. That, we, that the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel has to make its home in our heart. And we have to be at home in the story of the gospel. I think that's all he's saying that we know the redemptive story, we know the story of redemption, and we make our home there, and it makes its home in us. And he says we, we dwell on that, and we do that by teaching and exhorting one another in all wisdom. There's that word wisdom again. In other words, we learn from the bottom to the top. Everybody knows something that I don't know, and I may know something that you don't know. And therefore, we learn from bottom to top, we learn from each other. And one of the best examples of that in history is is Oscar Romero, who was a a martyr in Nicaragua. He uh, was a priest in Nicaragua and then was promoted to archbishop, which is as high as you can go uh, before getting to be a pope. And he was in this uh, position of authority, and he says, I thought, you know, what the church was doing in Latin America was perfectly fine. The governments were fine. He says, but then I decided, you know what? If I'm going to follow Jesus, I think I need to learn from the poor, and so he left it all, and he and he started living with the poor in Nicaragua. And he was assassinated in the middle of giving mass in a church. He was martyred. From top to bottom, we learn from each other. And I know those words, teaching and exhorting, can kind of maybe, you know, kind of maybe lend itself to becoming a bully. We talk about a bully pulpit. And I think if anybody is brow breeding, you know, browbeating brow somebody, a preacher can do that. That's not what, that's not what Paul is talking about. It's all got to be clothed in love. All of it. It doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. We do speak the truth to one another, but we speak the truth in love. That means we want the best for that person, the well-being of that person. Like I said, you can sometimes grab people by the lapels and say, get a job or whatever, but it has to be with the well-being of the person in mind teaching and exhorting each other with love without love love does not gag the truth it doesn't shut the mouth of the truth but if you don't have love Paul says it, it, it just the truth just crashes he says it becomes a clinging symbol that's all it is so we put those two together and we teach and exhort one another in love and then he has this singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Like, where did that come from? That kind of takes you, like, wait a minute. He kind of changes the subject. No, he didn't. He didn't change the subject. He's talking about teaching and exhorting each other. And how do we do it? We sing. Isn't that amazing? That with music, we teach and exhort one another. And I don't know about you, but music, I've said this before. Nothing moves me like music. Even in a movie, I mean, we're, Sue and I were watching this movie, and it had, closed with a song, and, and we're both just bawling. It moves us, and it gets into our soul. It, it, it permeates our minds, and it stays with us. I just saw an article two weeks ago that they're using music now with dementia patients and Alzheimer's. And I don't know if it, you know the story of Glenn Campbell, who eventually passed away, but he had Alzheimer's. But they said he would still get on stage and perform perfectly because the music was part of his soul. And it just gets into us. And I think this is up there because Paul's saying this is how we learn. This is how we exhort one another with music. Now, some people will say, okay, let's let's decide, okay, let's dissect this a little bit. What's a psalm? What's a hymn? What's a spiritual song? That totally misses the point. Trying to define those words and say we're going to try to obey each word—that just misses Paul's point. What he's saying here is do a variety. You know the taste will change through generation to generation. Just do a variety, but it should be exhorting, it should be teaching, it should be edifying. Whether it's psalms from the Old Testament or hymns or spiritual, whatever they are, just use music. Music is great. And then he says, what's typical of Paul, do it with a grateful heart. And I I really think this is kind of the basic attitude of the Christian is gratefulness and thankfulness. Because when we live that way, we get humble. We realize that that it protects us from being arrogant because we live a life of gratefulness and thanksgiving. And I just think that is kind of the basic attitude of the Christian. That it keeps us teachable and it keeps us with an attitude of tender mercy and kindness and gentleness and patience just an attitude of thankfulness i am grateful i'm grateful for what i have i'm grateful for the wife i have i'm grateful for the church i have it just changes everything and paul says this is what you this is what you do to maintain Spiritual songs with grateful hearts. And he says, whatever you do, in word or action, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. All he's doing here is tying back what he started in chapter 2, verse 6. This whole one section. He starts there. He, says, he begins this section. Therefore, just as you have received Christ as Jesus is Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, firm in faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness and now he says with whatever you do in word or deed do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the father through him we represent jesus and what does that all that means is that we are representing him doing it in his name whatever we do we represent him to the rest of the world and we are empowered by him when we do things in his name it is as if the country gets sent you know sends an ambassador off that ambassador is representing the government of the United States of America. And that ambassador is empowered by the government of the United States of America. Well, now we are going through in the name of Jesus because we represent Jesus Christ. And we are empowered by Jesus Christ. And we do it in giving thanks. He sums it all up by doing this, by this broad rule of life, that we do it in the power and the glory of Jesus Christ and if we do that representing him that means the walls start to break down in the name of Christ situations change new things happen healing happens restoration of relationships happen if we do all this in the name of Jesus the ancient religions they would invoke various deities thinking that they were gonna gonna get power from these these gods that they have so that they could do their will Well, we invoke the name of Jesus so that we can do God's will, not mine, not ours. And this giving thanks is just this characteristic of whatever we do, and we center it all, all of our work, all of our politics, all of our family, whether you're writing or whether you're playing tennis, we do it representing Jesus Christ. One of my favorite historical characters is Ignatius of Loyola. And he taught all of his disciples to pray the prayer of examine at night. And basically all that means is they would pray and say, What did I do today? My actions, my words, did it glorify Jesus? Would Jesus be proud or would Jesus be ashamed of what I did today? Every decision we make, is this glorifying Jesus or not? Maybe it doesn't matter. You get to choose. But there are some decisions you say, will this glorify Christ or will this not glorify Christ? Where does this decision come? And it comes wrapped with the buffer bond of love. Paul makes these lists and it, this list is very similar to the one Rob just read in First Peter. It's the list that Oscar read, read a few weeks ago from Galatians. It's this well-lived life is living life in the God's presence and this well-lived life are signs of the presence of God and we are prone to see the opposites of these things uh, we're prone to see our, our world that's fractured whether it's by by uh, politics or economics or race or religion or sexuality it's fractured all over the place but this will pre- this this is an ache for wholeness and it's marked by kindness, it's marked by, by tender mercy, it's marked by patience, and it's marked by gentleness. This is the reaction. And too often our lives are marked by reaction. And too often our lives are marked by arrogance and judgmentalism and maybe even violence. But Paul is saying, this is the list that identifies you. This is the clothes that tell us who you are. And these are the things that we need to put on. And yes, these virtues are just kind of eaten away in our world, and they seem to just kind of disappear. But he says, enter into the process. Enter into this process. Dallas Willard calls this a renovation of the heart. And if you've ever been involved in renovating a house or anything else, you know that this takes time. And I can tell you, as I stand up here, that it is much easier to preach this than it is to live it. But we get in the process of renovating our heart. And pretty soon, pretty soon, we, we, we talk about surrendering our lives. And this surrender goes, and then we get beyond that. And we start to live in contentment. And we start to realize that, what, that God has done well by us and will always do well by us, no matter what and we start to get this feeling that it starts to feel normal that this is how it's supposed to feel because we are created by a good and beautiful God and so we put these clothes on and it starts to feel normal it starts to feel appropriate it starts to fit and we start to feel like that the switching back and forth from shabby clothes to nice new clothes just doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. And only a fool would want to keep putting on shabby clothes. And these start to feel just perfectly normal and natural. Just want to leave you with this: that we are, we have been called and we are loved by God. And therefore dress appropriately. And I, I, I want to leave you with this. Just meditate on these these attributes, this section, this paragraph of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and then ask yourself this week, how would my life be different if I lived like this? What would my life be like if I lived like this? Would it improve? Would it get better? And I think you'd realize, yeah, it would get a lot better. And those clothes would start to fit we are god's chosen people beloved chosen set apart to do a task and we need to dress like it we need to dress appropriately how would our life look differently if we did that let's pray father we are thankful for these these uh, words that are that are profound and and difficult But we know that you have our best interests at heart. Father, we want to put them on. We want to put them on every day so that it feels natural. That it feels good to wear the clothes of the Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.